Hello everyone, my name is Afif Al-Kafash and I'm Katie Mugan and welcome to another episode of the Baby Tribe podcast where we're going to talk about all things cow milk protein allergy or CMPA which is the most common food allergy in young infants with a prevalence of around 1 in 100 babies. So about 1% of babies, Katie, may suffer from this condition. So what is cow milk protein allergy? Well, it's an intolerance or an allergy to the protein components of cow's milk that babies can react to. And it's generally divided into two different types. So there is a type whereby babies react immediately on exposure to cow milk protein. And there's a delayed type where babies can react as late as two hours after exposure to sometimes up to a couple of weeks after exposure. So Katie, tell us about the two types of cow milk allergy. Yes. So with regards to the cow's milk allergy, and this is something I'm sure you see a lot in your practice and I see as a clinician as well out uh, in the community. So we have the immediate response, which is the um, IgE mediated response. And that's in the acute uh, symptoms where we would see the skin uh, primarily being uh, affected, where you might have hives, often known referred to as eutcheria by medical professionals, swelling um, and respiratory uh, symptoms as well with regards to breathing issues. Um, and sometimes a wheeze as well. You can also sometimes see uh, vomiting and diarrhea. Blood in the stool is quite uh, common as well and a failure to thrive uh, would follow suit with that as well. Delayed uh, cow's milk allergy, or we often refer to this as the cow's milk protein intolerance, and that's down to the kind of delayed response. And this, again, we will see the skin can be affected, um, but also the uh, gut as well, where you can often find colicky babies, reflux babies, unsettled, crying, uh, blood in the stool. Mucus is very, very common in this infant as well. Constipation can follow um, and faltering growth can follow as well. Yeah. And just to reiterate, so the early type is when the babies mount an immediate allergic reaction to being exposed to camel's protein. So they can break out in hives, they can have swelling in their face, in their neck, and they'll have some tummy symptoms as well associated with that. These babies can sometimes be quite unwell and they may need to be referred to be seen quite urgently by a medical professional to try and address that allergy. And you'll often find a fever that parents will nearly automatically turn up at the A&E departments with these infants because it's so quick and, and uh, so extreme in a lot of cases. Whereas the delayed cow's milk protein um, intolerance, it nearly builds with time where, you know, it's not an immediate response, but you find as time goes on, this is where the colicky infant appears or a baby that's now starting to show signs of reflux. Yes, and this is why I decided to do CMPA as part of our three episode series, because the symptoms of a baby that is intolerant to cow's milk can be sometimes quite similar to a baby that is colicky or a baby that is refluxy. So these babies generally present with significant irritability. They may have um, a distended tummy. You may find that they're kind of refusing to feed. And sometimes you will see blood and mucus in their stool as well. And those babies can be challenging for us to diagnose because it's often a process of elimination as well. We try and address dealing with the colic first. And if that doesn't work, we try and, you know, do what we do for a baby that is refluxy. And then if that does not work, we start considering a cow's milk protein intolerance where we have to do 
a process of elimination in that sense. And well said, because a lot of people just jump straight for it's a cow's milk protein allergy or it's an intolerance and cut out the dairy or change the formulas. And sometimes by doing that can actually lead a parent to go down the wrong route, particularly for those breastfeeding moms. I feel so sorry, you know, already having challenges and then suddenly cutting out the nice things out of their diet when actually it might not have anything to do with it at all. And I also want to um, digress a little bit and say that this is not lactose intolerance that we are talking about. We will mention lactose intolerance towards the latter part of this episode. But just to differentiate between the two, lactose intolerance is an intolerance to lactose, which is the carbohydrate component of milk. It is not the protein component of milk. The symptoms are usually more towards the tummy side. So they have abdominal distension. They may have tummy cramps. They may have vomiting as well and diarrhea, but they won't have the failure to thrive as much or the um, kind of skin symptoms that you would see in a baby that has a camel protein allergy. These babies are more gassy usually and they have kind of acidic stools that can cause um, excoriation to the skin around the kind of bum area as well. But as we know, and we, we talk about it later on, is primary lactose intolerance is actually extremely rare in newborn infants. So it wouldn't be the first thing that we talk about. So anyway, going back to cow's milk protein allergy, let's talk about what causes it. Well, we feel that it's due to the sensitization to various protein components of cow's milk, particularly casein and beta lactoglobulin. So a baby can be sensitized to those once they're exposed to formula milk. And also in breastfed babies, they can be exposed to those proteins via the dairy consumption of the mother. And um, the proteins can actually filter into the breast milk and the babies can be sensitized to those as well. The clinical features usually present over the first few months of life. They can occur within days of introducing cow's milk-based formula into the diet. And in particular, infants that are also receiving soy milk diet um, can also display symptoms because there is cross-reactivity of soy milk proteins with cow milk proteins as well. So just to reiterate, putting your baby on a soy milk-based formula is not a treatment for cow milk protein allergy. And actually, just to add, uh, that also goes for goat's milk as well, because the goat's milk protein is quite similar to cow's milk protein, and you can often see the symptoms just uh, being the exact same. So, casein is one of the um, proteins that can promote cow's milk protein allergy, and goat's milk is predominantly casein as well. So, again, you should avoid hungry baby formulas because they're predominantly casein based as well. So, they are not good for babies that have symptoms that are um, likely to be cow's milk protein allergy as well. So like when we talk about um, risk factors, um, a lot of the time you will, when we do, uh, when I see clients, we always uh, take a full history and I'd always ask about family uh, history with regards to allergens or allergies. So we're looking at a history of an allergy within, with regards to a first degree relative. So that's a parent or a sibling. And also then if there's a history of atopic um, disease and also respiratory as well. Yeah, so it generally is commoner in families that have a history of allergic conditions. So you may have a brother or a sister or a parent that are intolerant to cow's milk protein. There may be history of asthma in the family or a history of eczema or, yeah. or trachea or hives. So that would be our first thing that we ask for to try and diagnose it. And I would also say just because there is a family history, um, you don't start out on doing elimination diets or going to a specific formula before your child has been exposed to it. The next part would be try and figure out whether these symptoms are more likely to be due to colic or gastroesophageal reflux rather than a cow milk protein allergy. And that can be difficult sometimes. Usually as first line, healthcare providers will try and adopt the treatments for colic 
and or reflux first to see if the baby improves. However, if the baby fails to improve in the presence of those interventions, then we would think about a cow milk's protein allergy. However, if the baby presents with blood in the stool or mucus and they're not gaining weight well, then me as a healthcare provider would probably think more of a cow milk's protein allergy as opposed to reflux or colic. Because if you remember from our previous episodes, blood in the stool or mucus in the stool and failing to thrive, meaning not gaining weight well, would be one of the red flags that we need to investigate sooner rather than later. Yes. And when we were talking about uh, the infant with reflux symptoms, oftentimes before I go down the medications route um, or advising regarding seeing the GP regarding medications, I would often look at changing and doing a trial of uh, extensively hydrolyzed formula in these infants to see would that make a difference? So when we talk about colic, reflux, cow's milk protein intolerance, sometimes the symptoms are quite interesting linked, but it's about taking a full history and going through exactly what possibly could be targeting it. And like that, Afif, as you said, sometimes you'll change your pathway. Sometimes we'll like, we'll make different decisions dependent, dependent on the child and the parent sitting in front of us. Yeah. And that's a nice segue into talking about how we manage it and how we treat it. And how we manage it, I suppose, depends on what is the primary method of feeding. So if a baby is exclusively breastfed, first of all, Katie, what do we advise mothers? So if it is, we feel there's a very strong possibility of a cow's milk protein intolerance or allergy, then we're looking at doing an elimination diet. And this is something that we don't jump to. We would always look at all other possibilities first because it is so restrictive for the mother. Um, in this instance, this is where a mother will eradicate every part of dairy from the diet. That's both the casein and uh, whey component. But you have to be very, very careful because it can be hidden in foods um, a lot of the time. So always check the back of the label and cutting it out completely because it can take anywhere up to three weeks. Now we say three weeks just to give it time, but generally you should see a very good response a response within the first week and that can improve then subsequently after that with the next, uh, with the following two weeks. If we see no improvement whatsoever, then we can probably take it that it's highly unlikely that is the cow's milk protein that is causing it. That said, it may be something else within the mother's diet, but it is definitely not the cow's milk protein that is doing it. We also advise mothers to avoid all soy-based proteins as well because an intake of soy products can also predispose the infants to mounting a response to those proteins as well. In fact, um, not too long ago, I had a mother that completely eliminated dairy from her diet, but did not eliminate soy. And she noticed that there was a relationship between her intake of soy and the re-emergence of blood and mucus in her baby stool. So it's important for mothers to also watch out. And as you said, it is quite restrictive then if you have to eliminate all dairy and all soy. And it's important that mothers take vitamin D while they're doing it and make sure that they take a calcium based supplement as well to make sure that they have an adequate intake of calcium. Absolutely. And when it comes to the diet and we do the elimination, oftentimes we wait until things plateau and then you start to trial to introduce very slowly back into the diet to see how much a baby can tolerate. For some women, they can tolerate quite, uh, for some infants, I should say, they can actually tolerate quite an amount. And for others, as soon as a mother reintroduces any element of dairy into the diet, we will see these symptoms re-manifest. So it is really important that obviously a full elimination is, take, uh, is uh, taken. And that means that if for some reason you forget or something happens and you accidentally take some, then you're starting fresh again. It takes time for it to leave the body, the cow's milk protein to leave the body. Um, and you may see symptoms again re-emerge. 
So moving on to babies that are exposed to formula. And let's face it, the majority of babies over the first six months of life will have some formula intake in their diet. So it's important to include those families in how we manage babies that have a cow milk protein allergy. And that's where we advocate moving either to an extensively hydrolyzed formula or a pure amino acid formula. The extensively hydrolyzed formulas contain cow milk protein that is significantly digested, broken down to smaller components. And the thinking behind that is that the body does not realize that they are proteins and does not mount an allergic reaction to them. So usually this would be our first trial is that we use these extensively hydrolyzed formulas to try and see if the baby improves. However, some babies may still mount a reaction to the protein that is extensively digested. And that's when we suggest the pure amino acid formulas. So these formulas contain proteins that are broken down to their smallest components, which are amino acids, which are the building blocks of proteins. So it is extremely unlikely that a baby would mount a reaction to pure amino acid formulas. But generally, especially in the kind of delayed type cow's milk protein intolerance, we would usually do a stepwise approach whereby we would initially advocate extensively hydrolyzed formulas. And then if there is no response, we move on to the pure amino based formulas. And what you'll find actually for some parents is that they notice a real improvement when they go on to the extensively hydrolyzed formulas. And then within maybe two to three weeks, they see that it's actually deteriorating again. And this is where we sometimes have to move on to the next stage. For some of the extensively hydrolyzed formulas, they are not very palatable. So depending on the age of the infant, you'll often find reluctance to get the babies onto these. So one specific brand, sometimes they will advocate for using particularly um, vanilla essence, one to two drops in. It can make it a bit more palatable to get the baby to start initially taking it. There is another brand out there that actually more babies will take take to it, but it just depends on what's available and what is prescribed um, for them. Okay. And this is a great time then to talk about the natural history of the condition. Sorry, if what are you talking about? I don't know what you're, what way are we going with this? Oh, sorry. The natural history means what happens to the babies that generally have a cow milk's protein intolerance. Ah, uh, okay. So oftentimes once a baby goes on to the specific formula um, or they are on an elimination diet and it is working, we generally will uh, remain off it while until they are working with a dietitian when they are starting solids. They will then start with the milk ladder and this is a step-by-step guide for parents on how to reintroduce it. So we generally do baked initially and then all the way right up to be able to be tolerate either a infant formula or uh, cow's milk protein, but this generally might not be till one. Yeah, exactly. And the reasoning behind the milk ladder is you start out, as you said, with baked products because baking, you know, dairy based products such as, you know, cookies or muffins breaks down the protein and denatures it, meaning that the babies are less likely to mount a reaction to it. And as you go up the steps of those ladder over the second six months of life, the baby gets exposed to less and less digested or baked and proteins. So they move on from, you know, cookies and muffins to yogurts and cheeses and eventually cow's milk at one year of age. Yes. And you'll actually find often the babies that have quite a mild intolerance will actually progress through the milk ladder quite quickly. Whereas some infants that have a a lot more, I suppose, more significant issue can take time. They can go up the ladder, back down the ladder, and it can be quite challenging for parents. Yeah, and absolutely. And that's when specialist care is needed and help from a dietitian and a person that specializes in cow's milk protein allergy or allergic conditions in general 
should be consulted. And just for parents out there, please note that there is community paediatric dietitians connected with your public health nurse and it is a free resource. So it should be something that you can um, access, particularly um, when your child is starting solids to educate you on how best to navigate this route. I would always look at making contact with your public health nurse and then they can refer into this community dietitian. If you are under the care of the hospital, that's very different. You will have access to the dietitian in that um, that situation. Yeah. And most babies tend to grow out of it after a year of age, usually um, between two to three years of age. And it's very unlikely that a baby will remain intolerant to cow's milk beyond that. One thing we should have mentioned before is that discontinuation of breastfeeding should never be advised in moms that are exclusively breastfeeding. Um, you know, because the babies aren't reacting to the protein of the breast milk, they are reacting to cow's milk protein components that are present in breast milk. Okay, so we're going to move on to lactose intolerance and just differentiate the difference. Yeah, so just to start with a key message, lactose intolerance is not a food allergy and it is a inability to break down lactose to the more simple sugars, which is glucose and galactose. So lactose is the predominant carbohydrate present in breast milk and also present in the number one formulas. Humans cannot use lactose as a source of energy. The lactose needs to be broken down by enzymes in the gut to more simpler carbohydrates such as glucose and galactose. So if we lack the ability, either permanently or temporarily, to break down lactose, what happens is that the bacteria in the gut can thrive on it. They create more gas and babies can end up with abdominal distension, tummy cramps, and diarrhea and the poos can sometimes be quite acidic so they can have angry burnt red skin around the bum and around the kind of nappy area they can have a very sore bottom excessive wind bloating and cramps as well and you'll nearly always see really frothy green poo yeah so these are the hallmarks of lactose intolerance so there are three main types so katie do you want to tell us about the three main types of lactose intolerance so I suppose firstly would be hereditary or congenital, and that would mean that the lactose intolerance runs within the family. It's very rare. Um, I don't think I've ever seen it. Have you? Have I think you? No, it's it's extremely rare. I think I've seen it only once. And I think they report a very, very rare incidence of one in a hundred thousand or even even rarer than that. So it's extremely rare. Okay. And then primary, it's probably more common in certain races. We've got African, Asians um, and American Indians as well. In Ireland, um, only up to about 4% of the total population may be affected. Um, and it usually doesn't impact kids or it doesn't affect them um, in under a year. Yeah. And in the majority of patients, the symptoms tend to not develop until kind of later childhood or adulthood. So that it wouldn't be something that we would be dealing with on a daily basis. Probably the most common that we would see will be secondary or temporary. And this is uh, generally caused by gut assault. Um, so maybe a child has been um, had a gastroenteritis um, where it has led to uh, these symptoms. The way we generally treat it is that we take the baby off their regular former for two to four weeks, sometimes max six, but onto a lactose free formula. And then they go directly back onto the normal stage one formula. And this just allows the gut to heal. Yeah, so... What lactose-free formulas are, they're not devoid of carbohydrates. They just contain the more simple broken down sugars in them. So the gut doesn't actually have to digest them. The reason um, a gastroenteritis or a tummy infection leads to a secondary lactose intolerance is that the damage to the lining of the gut can 
stop the gut from having the ability to digest lactose and it takes a while for that gut integrity to come back. So in the interim, the babies are better off going on a lactose-free formula so they can absorb those simple sugars and maintain their growth until the gut integrity returns. And generally, lactose intake can be reintroduced um, after about four weeks of a lactose-free formula. Right. That's Kama's protein allergy and lactose intolerance in a nutshell. I hope you guys found this useful. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back in a second. When choosing your antenatal care journey, you need a team that you can trust. Here at Evie, we offer personalised, multidisciplinary care in a state-of-the-art environment, ranging from consultant care, high-end scanning and prenatal testing, to expert advice on diet, exercise and mental health. Our team of world-class consultants in obstetrics, gynaecology and paediatrics provide the highest standards of care for you and your baby. Contact us today on 01 293 3984 or visit our website at ev.ie for more information. Evie, a game changer in antenatal care. And now next up is a thief and his nerdy segment. And I've been told that I have to stay tuned for this one. Yes. Well, first of all, I mean, you could have called this segment anything. You could have called it a thief's news segment. You had to you had to actually <laughs> use the term a thief's nerdy segment. And I think at the stage that it has stuck and we can't really change it. But you know what? We'll just go with it. Now, you know, sometimes when I do my nerdy segments, you switch off and you go on your screens and you start flicking through your Instaface or you know, Snapgram or all these, all these apps that you have because you're, you're a famous influencer, but I want your full attention on this one. I'm going to talk about a paper that deals with the association between infant screen use, brain activity, and cognitive outcomes at nine years of age. Well, I'm going to definitely listen to this one because in fairness, I will say like most parents, my kids have been exposed probably at a younger age. So you can tell us all. Yeah. And, and before parents start running away from this, please, Bear with me towards the end, because I think you like how I'm interpreting this. So this was a study that was done in Singapore, and they followed mother and child dyads over several years um, as part of a population-based study called Growing Up in Singapore Towards Healthy Outcomes, called GUSTO for short. So they actually followed mums from their pregnancy and followed them and their babies until about nine years of age. And in this particular study, what they wanted to see was the association between screen time at 12 months of age, brain activity measured at 18 months of age, and baby's executive function at nine years of age. Okay, I'm going to stop you there now and tell us all about executive function because I don't know what you're talking about. I will tell you all about executive function in a minute, but let me tell you about what they found. So they looked at 437 children And they followed them up for about nine years of age. And let me tell you, as a person that does research, this is an amazing achievement. It's really hard to follow families for that length of time. So they must have had amazing resources, an amazing way of of doing that. And what they found is that on average, at 12 months of age, that babies roughly had around two hours a day of screen time. Now, the thing I want to point out is that the screen time they're talking about is... TV screens rather than iPads or iPhones, because they started following these families in 2009. And um, when do you think mobile phones and smartphones and iPhones started coming on stream? God, I don't remember because I didn't have an iPhone from the from the offset. So I can't remember. I think it wasn't until 2010, 2011. So, you know, it's only about 10 to 12 years ago where 
this these kind of small screens became quite common. So what they found, as I said, was that the average screen exposure in 12 months old was about two hours a day. But the interesting thing that they found is that the longer screen time they had at 12 months, that actually impacted their electrical brain activity measured at 18 months. So the more screens the babies had, the more different their electrical brain activities were at 18 months of age. And that translated into poorer executive function skills at seven to nine years of age. So what they concluded was that they found an association between screen time at two years and executive function at nine years. You know now that every parent is screaming in their heads going, oh my God, I've ruined my child. Exactly. And I'm doing the same thing because let me tell you, even as a pediatrician, my kids were glued to screens for I would like to say an average of two hours when they were 12 months of age, but I certainly. <laughs> I think it's easy done, Afif, though, if you think about it, like I know, depending on my youngest versus my first, he probably didn't have as much exposure. But by the time I came to the Jack, he is now have, he's been exposed to it more because the older ones are doing it. And two hours goes by pretty quick when you think of cooking dinner mm-hmm. and getting things organized like it's gone in a flash. Yeah. And parents do need downtime. And sometimes the only downtime we can get is by plonking a kid in front of a screen. So, so no judgment here, folks. No this, judgment. Again, we said that this podcast is a judgment free <laughs> zone, but we have to actually present the information as it is. However, this is the important piece. What is executive functioning? Now, I'd be lying if I said that I did not have to go and look this up. So although I'm about to sound very, very smart, I did have to look this up. That's good because I hadn't got a clue what you were talking about when you read this out. I found this very interesting and somewhat comforting, and I'll tell you why. So executive functioning refers to a set of mental skills that help children plan, organize, and carry out tasks. And these skills include things like paying attention, remembering information, switching between tasks, and controlling impulses. So what does that translate? So imagine this, imagine that you have a two-year-old toddler that is sitting building a tower of blocks. In order for them to do that, they need to pay attention to where all the blocks are in their vicinity. So they need to say, okay, there's two blocks on my right, there's one block on my left, I'm gonna pick up the left one first, and I'm gonna take the one from the right and put it on top of the first one. So they need to remember which block to put where. And then they need to organize the blocks in a certain way in order for them to achieve that, right? They then may notice that one of the, some of the blocks are at the other end of the room. So they need to switch tasks, meaning that they have to get up, go to the other end of the room, pick up the block and come back and sit down. You're looking at me saying... I'm laughing because they're probably just going, Mom, go get me the block. <laughs> exactly. But that is still changing task. They're, they're changing their True. task from building the block to asking the mom to bring them. So same, same, same result. They also need to control their impulse not to knock the tower down. So these are executive functioning skills. So children who have good executive functioning are better able to complete tasks, solve problems. And while children who have weaker executive function skills may struggle with these with these tasks and they, they, may, they may not do as well in school. So what does that mean? Should we stop our kids from watching screens or not. Here's where the interesting bit is. So I feel, and the authors of the paper actually acknowledge this, that screen time may be a proxy for other things that may or may not be happening in that family dynamic. Meaning that the more time a child spends on a screen, that the less time they have doing activities that are more likely to develop their executive functioning skills. What you're saying that is, if we do all the other bits as well, 
then it's less likely to impact. It's the kids that are sitting, in fairness, in front of a screen for prolonged periods of time with no parental interaction or sibling interaction or playtime that leads to more issues. Yeah, and therein lies the kind of, I think, the important piece. So what are the things that actually help a baby or a child develop their executive functional skills? And when I list them, you'll see, you'll probably get what I'm saying. So you need to provide opportunities for unstructured play. Let them run away with their imagination because unstructured play allows the children to use their imagination, creativity, problem solving skills, and all these things can build on their executive functioning skills. We need to also encourage physical activity. It doesn't matter what they're doing as long as it counts as physical activity because regular physical activity has been shown time and time again to improve cognitive function in general and specifically executive functional skills especially if it's a team sport because all of these planning things that i told you about for example if you're playing gaelic or hurling or football or soccer or whatever you need to think forward you need to make a plan of what you're doing and even though that might be on a you know smaller level initially it still develops those skills creating routines and schedules can help them actually work within a kind of self-regulation skills framework so they can know that this is happening now and then babies and children thrive on, on, on a routine as well. And that's a key aspect of it. Allow them to try and problem solve themselves. Don't do everything for them. Try within reason to get them to figure out problems that they may come across on their day to day. And I do think that's a challenge for parents. It, I know I find it hard. Sometimes it's quicker for us to do things, whereas sometimes we just have to let them do these little tasks themselves. And that even comes down to dressing the toddler, letting them start do it themselves. And that even in itself is a task of them learning how to put on the socks or pulling up and down the trousers, you know. So, yeah. Yes, absolutely. And what can help is actually breaking them into smaller parts rather than expecting your little baby or toddler to do something entirely themselves, maybe get them to do the first part of it. Go get me your shoes and I will put them on for you, you know, rather than getting the shoes yourself. And I know that can increase the amount of time that you may actually end up doing something, but sometimes you may just have to do that. And finally, pretend play is great because pretend play um, allows children to practice taking on different roles, different perspectives. They can improvise and that all of these things help develop your executive functioning skills. So in summary, I don't think that it is the screen time that is causing the problems with executive functioning skills, but I think it's what does the screen time mean? Screen time means less of all these things that I'm telling you about. So my message is absolutely get your downtime with screens. I think that is reality. That's what all parents do, but ensure that you're also doing all of the other things as much as you can. Yeah, absolutely. I think play is a huge part of a children uh, of a child's life and sometimes and as parents we all kind of rush for the phone sometimes to keep them occupied when sometimes if you just went and threw a load of blocks or get their toys and threw them on the floor they would equally play with them just as much so it's finding the balance I think is that what we're trying to say exactly and sometimes letting the kids get bored can encourage them to do all of these things that promote their executive functioning skills even though I remember my mother telling me she hated that saying. And now I can absolutely say I hate the word bored. <laughs> yes, I know. Exactly. Anyway, moving on to the last segment of the show, on to parent questions. Okay, Katie, I actually have um, a question that has been asked by quite a number of parents here is, my baby has been diagnosed with a cow's protein intolerance and I cannot get my baby to take the hydrolyzed formula because it smells rotten. So what can I do? 
This is quite common, a thief. Um, many babies, especially the older they get, um, they struggle um, with the flavour of this new formula. It's not very palatable. If you smelt it yourself, uh, it's quite pungent. It smells, so, it, it smells like rotten fish. It is pretty horrific. Now, it's fine if your baby's small enough and they start on it early enough. To be honest, they will drink it. They don't see any difference. For a baby that has been used to the flavour of a different uh, stage one formula, then they struggle quite a lot. What we often recommend and the dietitians will recommend is using one to two uh, drops of vanilla essence in it can just make it a little bit more palatable. With time, it can help. Making sure the formula is a little bit more warmed when they give it rather than cold can help. That's great. And I always encourage you to keep offering that formula to babies because they will eventually take it absolutely well that was nice short and sweet this brings us to the end of this episode we can't wait to be with you next week so see you next tuesday katie see you next tuesday thief <laughs>